You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. I feel like it's been a million years since we podcasted. It has been. It's been. It's, it's been, been a million years very, since we've traditionally I was going to say, it's been a while since, because the last one we did was at Kevin's, and he did all of it. But we're here. We're in We're in Las Vegas. Back in Vegas. We were in Massachusetts for a while. There were a lot of bugs there, you There guys. was a lot of bugs. There was a lot of humidity. Mm-hmm. I don't really know why you live there. <laughs> it's expensive, and there's bugs and humidity. Yeah. I don't know. We made a good choice. It's yeah, like, no, I didn't realize how many bugs we didn't have until I got there and was like, I've seen so many bugs here and I've been here for like six hours. <laughs> All I just remember is when we walked out of the airport at midnight, just getting slammed by humidity and both of us were just like, <laughs> it's like, ew, it was rough. So yeah. now we're back in beautiful, dry, dry Las, Las Vegas. Vegas. Not today. It has been pouring all yes. day. Yes. <laughs> it has but, been raining. Know. We had weather today. Mm-hmm. It was weird. We brought our weather with us, I guess. Apparently so. We've, yeah. yeah, we've had weather the past two days. We got weird. a plane canceled because of weather. So. Yeah. I, I guess mean, to be fair, thing. tornado weather is a big deal, and please cancel my plane if I'm going to be in a tornado. It's true. It's true. It's fine. Everything's yeah. good. Mm-hmm. This will be coming out hopefully on the 29th. So it is the last Tuesday of June. So it is the last Tuesday of, of Pride. Pride. So we wanted to do this earlier yeah. and then it just didn't happen. And then we went away because and we went away. And yeah, we had a thing. We had our thing with Kev, our podcast with Kevin. So it just got complicated. So mm-hmm. here we are making sure we're going to get it out to you for Pride Month. Just in time. In the just nick of time. In time. You're welcome. You're fucking welcome. <laughs> so we are drinking Truly Extras today because, I mean, Pride Queer Pride. Podcast, mm-hmm. Truly Extra, some delicious peach mango right up in here. Pretty excited. Yeah. So it'll be good. It's 8% al- 8%. 8% alcohol. <laughs> but yeah, so let's get started here. I'm Brittany Vitrino. I'm Martha Bartlett. And this is But, but First, first let's, let's Talk Nerdy. Clay. Clank. So, Martha, you go first. Um, I'm just going to say, a small aside, since we've had a lot of the different seltzers now, the hierarchy of seltzers is as follows in my heart. Okay. Iced tea seltzers, regular fruity fucking seltzers, Mm -hmm. seltzers with other shit in them. (laughs) They're just not as good as the other ones. It's It's true. too sweet. Yeah. Especially if it's truly. Yeah. Truly is the most flavor out of all the seltzers. So as soon as you drink Truly, like the Truly lemonades are awful. They're so lemony. Mm-hmm. Even the ones that are cut with flavors. And the punch ones are very punchy. And the punch ones are very punchy. I can drink like one flavor out say, of that box. I really box. want like one of yeah. them that I don't want anymore. The, the other lemonades that we have, the Vizzies aren't bad because no. it's a lighter flavor. And they cut it with better yeah. stuff. And it's, a, and it's just overall a gentler flavor, so it's not as potent as Truly, but it's true. The iced teas are great, and the iced tea Trulies are the best, because they yeah, are the most so, flavor. So yes. And then after that, yeah, just the regular fruity shit is just some of the best. Give me normal shit. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. 
All right. That is our podcast for the day. Welcome to our seltzer talk. <laughs> Thank you for coming to our seltzer Thank talk. Thank you for coming to seltzer talk with Martha and Brittany. <laughs> so, uh, for our private episode, I am going to talk about She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. I started researching a lot of the queer characters, uh, since there's a lot of canonically queer characters, but then ended up mostly focusing on my OTP from it. Katra and Adora. <laughs> Katra Dora. Uh, my references today. I used Wikipedia, I used fandom, you know, the usual. I always use those things. I watched a couple, like, bits on YouTube and was like, <laughs> you know. As one does. It's fine, and As I'm normal. one does. Mm-hmm. And then also, uh, She-Ra is the Magically Queer Cartoon We Need Right Now by May Rude. And Inside the Groundbreaking Queer Reboot of She-Ra by Jenna Scherer. So yeah, for Pride, I wanted to talk about the recent reboot of She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, which is super queer and filled with canonical re- uh, representation. It's kind of like Udna in that almost every character in it is queer some sort of way. Which is, you know, my favorite type of any sort of representation when you're like, actually, if you hang out with queer people, it turns out they all gather in packs. So if you know one, you know like seven because they're all together. That's how those things work. It's nice when representation gets it right and it's not just the one like lone queer person who has to do all of the heavy lifting as far as. Mm -hmm. um, And the fact that it's all like. Yes, specifically, we have said these characters are gay or lesbian or trans or um, non-binary. Like, it's not implied. It's not something that you're like, oh, I wonder if that'll ever happen. They're like, it's a big deal. So that's very cool. We never had that in cartoons when we were growing up. True. So uh, She-Ra and the Princesses of Power is an American animated streaming television series. The Wikipedia nonsense. Yep. Developed by Noelle Stevenson and produced by DreamWorks Animation Television. Uh, so Noelle Stevenson, just so you know, is queer and um, just goes to show if you give queer creators uh, more free reign, they can do a really, really good job and really incredible stuff and also will get better writing and representation. So, I but- wish I liked the art better for Shira. It grows on you. Yeah. Because that's why I've never been, I'm like, it just, it, it's cutesy, but yeah. it's still like, to me, like, I don't want to say amateurish, but like oh, yeah. simpler like mm-hmm. that. And so I was never like, and if, if you know, if you don't like the art of something, it's hard to <laughs> super get into things. I get it. <laughs> yeah. I've had to, I mean, there are definitely things that I'm like, like I never liked the art and then I got into it and was like, okay, this is fine. Yeah. I see where you're coming from yeah, with that. Yeah, because I'm sure I'd love all of the you would. actual what a story and so shit going on and yeah. representation, mm-hmm. but I'm like, oh, I just... Well, you would love Adora because she's, like, a little bit dumb and she's strong and she kind of wants to fight everything and she's not very good at her problems. You know. That she's... a fucking call out? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's just characters that we love. I mean, if it's a call-out, it's a self-call-out. <laughs> Yikes. Oh, no. Every part of this is a nightmare. So, uh... So our podcast is really just for Martha and I to find out about awful things about ourselves. Yeah. I learn more here than I do in therapy. <laughs> no. Thankfully not, but... She learns things here and then has to talk about it in therapy. Like, oh, no. 
just so you know, I'm this character and I didn't know about it. And I'm, I'm not super happy. Anyhow, I digress, obviously. Okay, so like the 1985 Filmation series, She-Ra Princess of Power, of which this is a reboot, uh, She-Ra and the Princesses of Power tells the tale of Adora, a teenager who can transform into the heroine She-Ra and leads a group of other magical princesses in a rebellion against the evil Lord Hordak and his horde. The series premiered as a Netflix original program on November 13th in 2018, and its fifth and final season was released on May 15th, 2020. So it received critical... (laughs) Oh no! I think you have to go. I think think you're done. (laughs) Siri, Siri, can you read this for me? Can, Can you read this? (laughs) <laughs> it received critical acclaim uh, with particular praise towards its uh, diverse cast and the uh, complex relationship between Shira and her best friend turned arch enemy Katra. And in 2019, the show was nominated for a Glad Media Award for Outstanding Kids and Family Programming, as well as a Daytime Emmy Award, which I don't really care about. And then it tied for uh, the GLAD Award. So, yay, good job. Uh, in 2021. I guess it was a different GLAD Award. <sighs> Reading things all the way through. So, that's the end of the Wikipedia spiel, and hopefully this will sound more like a person talking. <laughs> we'll see. No promises. Clinical. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it fits. Uh, it fits uh, our topic. Uh, it fits our theme. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking shit. <sighs> oh, my face. Ugh. Okay. Shira and the Princesses of Power is set on the planet Etheria and follows the stories of Adora and Katra, orphans who were raised to be soldiers in the Horde. They are part of an evil army led by Hordak, a tyrannical despot who dreams of conquering the planet. Uh, One day, after getting lost in the woods, Adora finds a magic sword that transforms her into the legendary princess of power, She-Ra, which it's like, all of a sudden you're walking along, you find a thing, it tells you to say a thing, and then you do it, and you have a nice, like, huge magical girl transformation, then you're like, what the fuck? The dream, but not. Mm -hmm. Well, and also... It's fun because she's, so canonically she's 5'6", but when she's She-Ra, she's like 7 or 8 feet tall. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, she turns big and shiny. It's awesome. You know, I love a giant woman. And then she walks into everything because she still thinks she's 5'6". How do I exist? (laughs) (laughs) Some magic is help, but you know. There's a lot of like, I'm gonna just hit this with my sword and hopefully that does the thing. No, that's not how that works, I guess. We'll figure it out. Okay, she finds a sword, blah, 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 turns into She-Ra. She realizes the Horde has actually been evil the entire time and uh, has been inflicting suffering on Etheria and its inhabitants, and they've been telling them the entire time, like, indoctrinating them that princesses are evil and that they're, like, out to get you and this and that. And it's like, actually, you've been the bad guys your entire life. Womp, womp. Womp, womp. Yeah, so... uh with all of that done, Adora decides to join the rebellion and fight against the Horde. She helps rebuild the Princess Alliance, a league of kingdoms ruled by other magical girls that once 
all opposed Hordak. Uh, however, her newfound allegiance to the Rebellion pits her against Katra, her former best friend, whose feelings of betrayal and abandonment twist her personal ambitions and lead her to become Adora's mortal enemy. Uh, and then much of the show centers around their conflict. So it is a classic friends to enemies to lovers slow burn. Gotta love it. So, uh, I wrote here, as far as queer characters go, we have a lot to choose from. And then I literally just talked about Adora and Katja. <laughs> I dig it. Oh, it's fair. self. It's fair. It's fine. So Adora is uh, an 18-year-old girl in season one. She's portrayed as a willing member of the Horde. Uh, she's brought up in the mil- rigorous military environment since she was found as an orphan years prior. As a result of this, she's trained to believe that all princesses are evil and oppressing the people of Etheria. Uh, she's also longtime best friends with Katra, and they're within the Horde together, and it sucks, but at least they like have each other as a lifeline. So they have like their squads in the Horde where they go out, they train to eventually go out and be Horde soldiers. Adora in her squadron is, she's a protege and is um, promoted to force captain during the first, the series uh, first episode. But she's also told that none of the rest of her squad is promoted. So that means that she would be going off into this world, but not going off with Katra, who has been basically by her side since like, since they were little, little kids. They've been, like, very, very close best friends forever, and, like, okay, you're going off to a whole different world without me? This isn't how either of us saw this going. Uh, so they go sneak off base to kind of get away from all of that shit, and, I don't know, have fun, do something dumb. They end up getting separated, and that's when Adora finds her sword of protection, which turns her into She-Ra. She is soon captured by two of the rebels, Princess Glimmer and her best friend Bo, who are both so fucking cute. Uh, and Bo literally never ever wears anything that covers his stomach. He's always wearing some sort of a crop top. There's a Princess Prom episode at one point, and he puts a cummerbund on, and then he's like, no. And it has, like, just the... <laughs> I'm like... I appreciate that. <laughs> they capture Adora after she's like kind of turned back into Adora and everybody's like, what the fuck is going on? And while she's captured, she learns that the Horde are the real oppressors and that they've been like really destroying a lot of things and basically committing genocide. And it's not the princesses that are like doing anything bad. They're just, the princesses are just like, other teen girls like fucking Glimmer, who's just there kind of bouncing around, trying to be fighty. She gets more fighty later, but... I like her using the word fighty to describe it. It's true, though. (laughs) She's trying to be fighty, and it's not working. Oh, baby. So after learning the truth, Adora joins the Rebellion as the second She-Ra in recorded Ethereum history. And she struggles in both mastering her powers as Shira and gradually winning the friendship of those in the Princess Rebellion who were slow to trust her at first, which is fair because, you know, she was in the Horde for, like, her entire life. Uh, also, it turns out that, like, changing sides and getting new friends and leaving your old ones behind doesn't, like, come super easily. Uh, especially when your entire worldview has been this, like, teeny narrow thing and they're like, oh, actually... There are all sorts of things, and you can, like, enjoy things in life and stuff like that. Adora sees a horse for the first time and is like, what the fuck is 
that? It's so majestic. And they're like, it, it, it's a horse? <laughs> and it ends it's up, not majestic when yeah. it shits. No. It ends up becoming her, like, somehow she fucks up with her sword and it becomes her, like, unicorn, but also Pegasus. There's a word that does both, but I can't remember what it is. But it doesn't matter right now. But yeah, he ends up becoming her horse uh, named Swiftwind, who also can talk and is, like, super majestic. He's like a normal horse, and then all of a sudden he has, like, he's a fucking unicorn pegasus. There's a word for that. Unisys. <laughs> You've got to have corn in there because there's you- still a horn. Pegacorn. That's it. Is it really just a pegacorn? It's just a pegacorn. I've never heard of this. Yeah. Well, you know, like, I guess you don't see him very often. Is Pegasus from... No, he's just a pegasus. Yeah. No, he just has that little gem on his face. Yeah. From Hercules? No. Oh. From what? Sailor Moon. Oh. He is a pegacorn. Yeah, I think he is. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. What was his name? Helios. You called him... You just called him Pegasus. Which is why I thought you were talking about the... Because he is Pegasus in the... She calls him Pegasus, Uh, and then she learns his name later. Yeah. Well, she's wrong. Pegasus, let me use your power! That's something... It's not quite that, but it's, like, (laughs) really close to that. It's very annoying. Yeah, I think he Twinkle, yell! Yeah. I also watched it in Japanese, so she might not have called him Pegasus in Japanese. Probably not. (laughs) That's a good question. I don't have an answer to it. Okay. Um, it's a lot of, like, learning that there are things in life and not everything has to be terrible, but also learning that your entire upbringing has been wrong and has been, like, trying to push you into this, like, terrible bullshit. It's a bummer. Yeah. If you're thinking that there's some, like, gay themes here... They're blinding. Also, Adora is a big fucking lesbian. <laughs> Lesbians. Mm-hmm. Yes. Adora is a lesbian. Catra's a lesbian. Like, there's a lot of lesbians on the cast, which is great. I would say that there are pretty much... No one is implied to be heterosexual. Which is my favorite type of anything. Which is, like... Pretty wow. fucking accurate. Yeah. Why would you? Why? Like you're you're telling me with no, it's all like but people. It, yeah. I don't believe people who say they're completely one hundred percent heterosexual. I think you're lying. You might be like ninety five percent, but I don't think you're one hundred percent. I think me you're a fucking you, liar. Like, there wouldn't be one person, one person that you'd like exchange awkward hand jobs with. I just feel like that's a lie. It just seems unreal. <laughs> like, I, I don't know if that's just me. I feel you. It's not, but it's like, <laughs> no, seems fake. Mm. Sounds like a lie to it me. It sounds like a fucking lie. Yeah. Like, not even a fun lie. No. Come on. Boring. Okay, yeah. Yeah, well, so. we all know heteros are boring. I know, it's the worst. <laughs> that's why you don't get a flag, because you guys suck. And, you know, because you don't go through any, like, persecution. (laughs) (laughs) Also that time. (laughs) Uh, Pride. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, self. So changing sides is hard. 
learning everything is new is hard. And also, she leaves her whole world behind and then has to fight her former best friend who feels betrayed because, like, literally right before when everything was going to shit and she was, like, promoted, she was like, I'm not going to leave you behind, Catra. I would, you know, basically I would never leave you behind. But, you know, it all comes to it. So, Catra is uh, about the same age. She was a childhood friend of Adora, raised alongside her by their uh, trainer slash mother figure. Uh, I wasn't going to say it. (laughs) You made a face, though. I did. (laughs) I did. (laughs) Uh, Their trainer slash mother figure, Shadow Weaver. So you know she's obviously a bitch. Though Adora tried to defend Catra from Shadow Weaver's abuse throughout their childhood, Catra resented Adora for the favoritism shown to her by Shadow Weaver. So basically, like, in a childhood, everything Adora did was right and everything Catra did was wrong. And Shadow Weaver was, like, the gross narcissistic mom that we all know somebody who knows somebody, or we know somebody's mom. So... She was just essentially our whole fucking capitalistic system that turns the little people against each other instead of fighting against the gross-ass capitalists. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, yes. She's also, like, everybody's abusive parent who is like, I will turn my children against each other so that everyone gets to be as miserable as me. What a fucking bitch. Yeah, she's terrible the entire time. She's terrible. It's also nice because they're, like... We don't think she's redeemable, so we just don't redeem her. <laughs> she does a good thing at the end and is yep. still a bad person. Yep. Not everyone's redeemable. No. We don't always need a redemption arc, everyone. No. Some people just suck. Yeah. Especially when they've put you through probably 18 years of abuse. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, unlike Adora, Catra is well aware of the Horde's manipulations and accepted it for the sake of her own amb- ambitions and her life with Adora. She basically was like, I know you guys are fucking shitty and that you're bad people. I've known that this is, like, the princesses being good and us being bad isn't a fucking surprise. Adora, you're just fucking naive. And this is the best I can get, so I'm just gonna fucking deal with it. After Adora defects from the Horde, Catra rejects her former friend's attempt to talk her into leaving as well. Um, and Stevenson explains Catra's feelings of betrayal towards Adora are personal. Adora is more idealistic. She loves everyone in the world and she kind of wants to save everyone. And Catra can't understand or accept that. And that's the core tragedy, not just of the characters, but of the show. So throughout the show, both of the characters are kind of obsessed with each other. Katra knows that Adora is She-Ra after the first season, but keeps it to herself and takes it kind of personally. And it's not like Adora where it's not like with Adora where she falls into a new life, but it's one filled with like nice things and nice people who love her and like new best friends and all cute, adorable people and a lot of lesbians. And Adora is constantly wondering about Catra's next scheme, or Catra's this, or Catra's that, in that, I think in the fourth or fifth season, she's literally like, I wonder what Catra's doing, and Bo and Glimmer are both like, oh my god! (laughs) (laughs) How do you not see what's happening here? Uh, 
So the first season of the Shira reboot basically focuses on establishing the characters and their relationships uh, in order to set up the future seasons. So it's a kind of a princess of the week thing where it's like, we'll meet this princess, figure out kind of what they can bring to us, and then Adora and Glimmer and Bo go on their like little adventures. It's adorable. While the core premise and characters of the original series were carried over, as well as uh, many of his affectations, such as Adora's uh, transformation catchphrase for the honor of Grayskull, uh, the reboot sets itself apart from the 1980s series by being an almost entirely female cast. And uh, the characters were made to be deliberately diverse, both in regards to appearance as well as character traits. And then He-Man also... Uh, so in the original series, He-Man is the one who awakens She-Ra's destiny, and he's not in it at all. Good. Exactly. We Fuck don't need you no and your stupid page shit. cut. Okay, so in the first season... Adora helps reassemble the Princess Alliance, which successfully defends the rebel stronghold of Bright Moon against the Horde's assault. Meanwhile, Catra rises in the ranks to become Hordak's second-in-command. Uh, the first season also has the Princess Prom episode, which I was talking about with the Cumberbund yes. earlier, which takes your normal prom trope and queers it up, like, way all the way, which is the best, um, and also gives us a really good idea of how normalized queer relationships are within this world. So it's like episode eight, I think. And there's a bunch of clearly queer relationships and people are dancing and cute. Princess prom. It's cute. No one bats an eye at anybody being queer. It's not a weird thing. Love um, it. Adora and uh, Catra have a weird antagonistic, like slow dance where uh, Catra like dips Adora and it's pretty, like, heated, and there's a lot of queer... It's not even subtext, it's just text, but no one wrote it down. Like, but you can see it. It's very fucking gay. <laughs> also, Catra is in the sickest burgundy suit, and you know I'm... Like, I'm just picturing suits, 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 suits. the Adams Family. Oh, Yeah. And their you know, their dance that they do in that with mm-hmm. that movie, the Family Values, is that yes. the one? I think so. With Debbie, I can never. Oh yes, that's the main one I watched growing up, and I can like picture this dance scene perfectly. But mm. it's except it's them being super queer. It's so cute. Ugh, there's no subtlety as far as the queerness of those characters, even though none of that has been like confirmed or anything like that. They just put a lot of subtext in there so that they could be like. And the fans were like, we noticed! We noticed! <laughs> so yeah, in the second and third seasons, Hordak attempts to build an interdimensional portal, which will at- allow him to contact his creator, the Warlord Horde Prime. Warlord Horde Prime. Really? I, I know. He's the one. The first one. And then there's a bunch of them. And then Catra activates the portal, and the rebellion leader, Queen Angela, sacrifices herself to stop it. Uh, Queen Angela is Glimmer's mom. So in the fourth season... Now is is Angela just spelled like Angela but just said differently? It has two L's. Oh, okay. (laughs) Has my spelling thing poisoned you? I'm so excited. I'm very much here for it. Yeah, no. It has like Angel or Angel Law. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, she sacrifices herself to stop it, and then in the fourth season, there's uh, friction because 
Adora and Glimmer are, um, there's friction between the two of them. Glimmer has also, because she is Angela's daughter, she's the new queen of Bright Moon. So she's like, now I have no mom, no dad, and I'm newly queen. So she's things are fucked Disney up. princess. It's yeah, fine. <laughs> basically. And then Adora learns that her sword is the key to an ancient super weapon uh, within uh, Etheria. Catcher convinces Hordak to uh, be her co-leader of the Horde, and then Glimmer attempts to use the super weapon to win the war, uh, and it's not great because it's a super weapon. It pulls Etheria through a portal, which makes it vulnerable to attack from Horde Prime's armada because it had been pulled through a portal previously to keep it safe. It's all much more complicated than I want to say in this tiny paragraph. The sword is the way to make it start, and Adora destroys her sword, which makes her lose access to her Shira powers, and also Glimmer and Hordak and Katra are all captured by Horde Prime. So, big fucking deal. And so the fifth and final season follows Adora's journey to liberate Etheria from Horde Prime's reign. Adora rescues Katra and Glimmer from Horde Prime's ship, rediscovering her Shira powers in the process, but uh, in the meantime, Horde Prime has subdued much of Etheria with mind control capabilities. You know, he's one of those. The princesses and Katra, who decided to redeem herself, work together to disable Horde Prime's uh, hive mind and stop him from accessing Etheria's ancient super weapon and in the end while Hordak who had a change of heart turns against Horde Prime it is Adora and Catra's love for each other that enables Shira to destroy both the weapon and Horde Prime and save the universe from tyrannical reign with sparkles yeah you know yeah, there I are know. so many fucking sparkles I'm here for the sparkles <laughs> but yeah so basically from the start uh, so that was like your very quick recap of the series. Uh, but from the start, She-Ra's compelling tension was always between Adora and Katra. Um, Adora's childhood friend who becomes her bitterest rival after Adora leaves the Horde to join the Rebellion. Uh, in the show's first four seasons, they continually fight and kind of reconcile every now and then. Adora wants to trust Katra, and Katra loves Adora, so is like wants to do that but is also so hurt it's it's a big fucking mess you know uh and then in the fifth season it all comes to a head and they have to figure everything out but their weird obsession with each other kind of marks them as more than like just friends or enemies or frenemies or something like that and uh stevenson noel stevenson said it was a di- it's a dynamic that i really find interesting the attraction and the tension between the villain and the hero especially when they know each other better than anyone they love each other but there's something between them that cannot be overcome um and stevenson always knew that she wanted the relationship between katra and adora to be a romantic one but she had to walk a fine line because she didn't know the studio was going to be like no you're not allowed to be gay. Mm-hmm. No one's allowed to be gay. Or give her the go-ahead to put an explicitly lesbian uh, love story at the story front. And basically, like, how she did it was she made everything super queer and then, like, slowly brought in more and more queerness and was like, well, it's already there. And then by the end of it was like, you can't change this story because the entire story is it's, about their yeah. love story. 
Like, it's there. So the show also features uh, multiple side characters in same-sex relationships, characters who flout uh, traditional... Traditional? (laughs) Traditional gender roles. So what does traditional mean? (laughs) I think traditional is traditional gender. Okay. (laughs) Traditional. Boo. Yeah, it's terrible. (laughs) What it means is boring-ass shit. There's even a non-binary character uh, called Double Trouble, which is uh, voiced by trans writer and activist Jacob Tobiah. They're so cute. I love them. They're a shapeshifter, so. Oh, fine. I know. I'm like, <laughs> yay. Also, all shapeshifters have to be non-binary yes. or gender fluid. Those yes. are the rules. Those are the fucking rules. Those are the rules. Just like all immortals have to be at least some form of queer. Yes. Those are the rules. Those are the fucking rules. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Stevenson was basically trying to make it as, like, queer as possible before being like, yes, we have to do it yep. now. But also wanted to make sure... <laughs> You've already it, given me four se- yeah, seasons. <laughs> that the queer relationship wasn't incidental, but was, uh, wasn't incidental, but was central to the plot of the entire series. Noah was like, I've loved these, uh, these stories my entire life, you know, I was a huge Star Wars and Lord of the Rings fan, but there weren't a lot of characters that I felt personally represented by she says uh, we love what makes these stories classic but we've seen them all culminate in the same kind of romance so many times the hero gets the girl he gets the kiss and then he saves the world and it's not just swapping the man and the woman for two women you have to actually approach it from a standpoint of how do you make these stories at their root queer so that's what i was trying to do for little queer kids to see that this is normal that these are stories that can happen and that exist and that can center them and make them feel seen and understood so whether their uh catra and adora's romance would become canonical was up to the hands of the studio but so uh stevenson played a long game but kind of like you can tell from the start that, like, literally from the first episode, if you can understand subtext, you can tell from the literally first episode that it's like, there's something going on there. So basically, it was a lot of, like, hinting at a romantic dynamic and putting a lot of clues in there for fans to see the subtext that wasn't really subtext, you know. We all know it's text. Mm -hmm. And uh, fortunately, basically everyone was like, yes, Kation! (laughs) We're so here for this. And like all of the, there was a lot of shipping. There were tons of fan works and people picked up on the tension really quickly and got really into it. And it immediately started being basically the strongest fandom ship right out of the gate for uh, She-Ra, which obviously. And then uh, that was when she showed her hand and was like, look, we've got a bunch of people who just off of season one are really, really excited about the gay representation in this show. I've been planning for this, and here's how it needs to end, not just because I want a moment that everybody's going to talk about, but this is the logical conclusion of both of their character arcs. They need each other. But so in addition to that, the series addresses themes such as abusive relationships with shitty shadow weaver, overcoming trauma, prejudice, isolationism, colonization, imperialism, and genocide from, like, fucking Hordak. Uh, there's a strong focus on the struggle to break free from sociopolitical indoctrinization and uh, explored mainly through the stories of Adora, Hordak, and Light Hope, 
we didn't talk about really at all. And uh, the series emphasizes the necessity of taking action no matter one's power or circumstances. It portrays magic as fallible and dependent on its wielder's skill and determination. Adora's powers in particular are directly tied to her love for her friends. Uh, Despite this, Adora's main conflict stems from being told that she must suppress her personal desires in order to be the hero Etheria needs. Which is, if that isn't literally the most gay theme I've ever heard in my entire fucking life. (laughs) Yeah. Also, Horde Prime's, like, regime in season five has a lot of, like, weird culty, like, kind of Christian things. You must be purified and this and that, and we'll all be the same person. And I'm like, this is fucking creepy as shit. Yep. Uh, and then the series also features uh, a number of same-sex romances among the secondary and side characters as well. Um, there's uh, the two characters, Spinnerella and Natasa, who um, in the first season, they appear for like half a second, and they're like, right next to each other, and I was like, oh, cute gay people. And then they're later revealed to be wives. They're married to each other. Cute. They're just cute and adorable. And they have, like, a kind of plot arc later with, like, some mind control nonsense. Uh, and then uh, Bo's fathers are Lance and George. He has two fathers, and they're both so fucking adorable. Um, and then I think he's he's one of, like, seven sons. <laughs> Sounds awful. <laughs> uh, miserable. Yeah. Imagine one having seven children, but all mm-hmm. of them being boys. No. All of that sounds like the... No. The absolute worst? Absolutely not. I could not. Okay, so Bo also is uh, absolutely enamored with the only other good guy, Seahawk, who is like this goony pirate who is very, very... (laughs) Very flamboyant. Uh, Fran is going to be the best Seahawk ever at some point. Perfect. He ends up, like, staring and shrieking in excitement whenever uh, Seahawk does something cool. And when Seahawk later rescues him, Bo, like, swoons in his arms. Like your traditional rescue damsel nonsense. And uh, Stevenson later confirmed that uh, Seahawk was by when they run into this character that she confirmed to be his ex-boyfriend. So they, like, are trying to get away and they're all disguised. And then he looks up and there's this dude there. And they're like, I'm gonna hide. It's my ex. But also, I set fire to things when I want to solve problems. (laughs) So let's stay by here. We'll just hide. It's fine. Um, and yeah, none of this is super out of place in Shira where queerness is just normalized. Beautiful, 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 beautiful. Also, there were a couple characters that they didn't explicitly say were trans during the show, but um, have been confirmed as trans after the show, which is really cool. Perfuma is one of Adora's main allies, and she is, um, they said that they intended for uh, her to be read as a trans woman, which, looking back, I can see that. That's cool. So, circling back to that ending. So basically, Adora has to um, break the sword so that she can't make everything into a terrible weapon, blah, blah, blah. And after that, she can't transform into She-Ra because of it. So uh, she's willing to sacrifice herself for everyone and everything because um, she can fix everything. But without She-Ra's power, she'll be destroyed. And she's there and she's telling Catra that she's sorry. And Catra's like, what 
No. No. This is not a valid answer. You don't get to be like, no, I'm sorry. Like, I'm just going to sacrifice myself for everything. This is bullshit. This is dumb. Bye, bitches. Yeah. <laughs> no. Unacceptable. So Catra refuses. Catra's like, I'm, I'm not leaving so that you can, like, sacrifice yourself and have your own ending by yourself. This is dumb. Adora is starting, like, basically taken over by Horde Prime's virus. Uh, Catra ends up calling out to Adora as I am loudly weeping while she's holding her unconscious form that's being taken over by this weird Horde virus. As she's calling out to her, they flash back. She's holding her in her arms, but it's also her reaching out to Adora in um, literally framed the exact same way as... Udna reaching out to Anthony in the coffin. Of course. And yeah. Martha's about to get cry right like, now. I'm emotional. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very emotional. If you ever want to see Martha cry, just put on Udna. The, like, last three episodes, though. She'll just cry. She'll quietly cry, and you're not going to expect it. And then you look over, and she's bawling. <sighs> you know. And then you just pat her on the head a little bit and let her cry. It's a lot of stuff. I don't know. I think about future Udna, like, probably once a week. It's fine. Yeah. What are you gonna do? I cry over fucking Dodo videos. But yeah. Oh, who doesn't? If you don't (laughs) Dogs seeing their owners after not seeing them for months is some of the saddest shit ever. (laughs) The most touching, I'm going to cry my eyes out. (laughs) But yeah, so she's... It's the same, like, reaching out, um, and then finally being like, you have to stay with me, you can't fucking leave, don't you fucking get it. She doesn't say fucking as often as I do. (laughs) But she would if this was not a children's. (laughs) Reaching out to her and telling her that she's got her, she's like, I've got you, Adora. Don't you get it? I love you. I always have. So please just this once stay. And like, asks her to stay. And like, reaches out and that's finally when they can hold on to each other. She technically pulls her out, and that allows her to beat Horde Prime's virus and also regain access to She-Ra. Adora wakes up and is like, you love me, and Catra is just like, you're such an idiot, which is my favorite response to anything. Adora says, I love you too, and they kiss. There's a bunch of rainbows and glitter and nonsense, and uh, that makes Adora transform into She-Ra, literally a gay magical girl transformation. All because, I ever want. Yeah. I'm like, ugh. Bless. <laughs> so good. So yeah. So that's basically that. That is She-Ra and that's Ketra and Adora. It's a lot of canonical gay representation. Also, one of my favorite things that I found when I was reading on this and it didn't really come into anything, but at the climax of the first season all the princesses are kind of lined up and their power is coming out of them and it's like a fucking rainbow. And one of the network executives asked uh, Noelle Stevenson what the rainbow in the climax meant and she said, the gay agenda. Of course. <laughs> yeah. If you ever have to ask what a rainbow means, mm-hmm. come the fuck on. Oh my god, duh. And, and also anything with princesses ruling the world, let's fucking go. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's so good. Uh, Feminism and queer pride. Yeah. I'm all about this. This is all I want. <laughs> all I want in my life. So, so good. Yeah, so uh, it's on Netflix for anybody who hasn't watched it. The fucking theme song is a goddamn bop. It's called Warriors. 
And it's so good. Um, one of the articles I was reading was like, it's among, um, like Daredevil and some of the other ones and that you can't skip the credits. Yeah. Like, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. That works. Yep. They didn't say 90s X-Men, but they meant 90s X-Men too. Um, (laughs) (laughs) any of the X-Men actually? So with that, let's go! Okay. I'm lifelong ensign Charles Kelso. I'm Federation Envoy Keith Johnson. I'm Ferengi Counselor Veronica Dashiell. And I'm Andorian Mess Hall Cook R. Allen Siler. And we're the crew of Earth Station Trek. Join us for episode reviews, discussions of themes and characters, and all the news from across the Trekverse. Our logs cover the full gamut of Star Trek. From the groundbreaking original series to the future of the franchise on Paramount Plus. With lots of stops in between. Join our crew aboard Earth Station Trek for your regular podcast escape into the Trekverse. Go bald or go home! Welcome to Dr. Geek's Laboratory. Hello everyone, Dr. Geek here with a shout out to all the scientists who worked tirelessly to bring a COVID-19 vaccine into reality. And let's face it, creating something of this magnitude is a miracle worthy of Dr. McCoy himself. And now, Dr. Geek needs you to do your part. Remember, each shot is one small step back to normal, one giant leap to putting the pandemic behind us. We can do this. For more information, visit vaccines.gov to find your nearest provider. Okay, so my turn. Yay, I'm excited. Well, I have no idea what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, so I changed my topic like eight times. <laughs> oh, that's fair. <laughs> This so this topic is always in my mind, and as soon as I see it, always you'll know. on my mind. I am gonna talk about Bumblebee, aka Blake. And oh my Yang. god! Oh, okay. Yes. So Ruby's it's been like, the topic I've been holding Bumblebee? on to, yeah, for a long <laughs> right. time because I haven't been sure what area I want to attack it on <laughs> because there's so many parts of it that I love. I think the main thing that held me off was because it's not technically canon. canon but it's actually sort of listed as, like, semi-canon now. Okay. And since I was two seasons behind and after re-watching all of it, it is definitely more like they just haven't officially said it yet. It's a thing they've been slowly building towards. exactly. Like, there's no way around it now. Like, like, they just have to fucking come out and say it. So... That's... Yeah. That's how you gotta do it. (laughs) It works that way. Yeah. And I think for Rooster Teeth, we'll get into it a tiny bit, but like, because they're a very progressive and like millennial and forward company, the topic of queerness queerness isn't the problem. I think they want to try to, they want it to live up to everything. I don't know if it even originally was supposed to start that way and now it turned out that way, but now they're like, uh, okay. But I'm just like, just hey. fucking do it. So, well, how many times do, is it something where you're like, oh, I think that people weren't meaning for these characters to be gay. But also, as a person who is queer, I can't help but see how queer coded yeah. this is. Yes, and it's one of the top 
It's their ships. big ship, right? And yes, one of their biggest ships in, in the series. So we're going to talk a little bit about it and why they just need to fucking pull Admit the trigger. It, yeah. You bitches. All right. So sources, Wikipedia, fandom, there's the shipping Wikipedia. And then I did just binge all of Ruby. True. So um, it's fresh in my brain. Ruby is an American anime-influenced adult computer animated web series created by Monty Ohm from Rooster Teeth. It is set in a fictional world called Remnant, where young people train to become warriors called huntsmen or huntresses to protect their world from these monsters called Grimm. This has nothing to do with anything. Huntsmen is so much lamer than huntresses. I know. Huntresses sound so much more badass. Huntsmen? Yeah. Fuck you. Oh my god. Yep. That's all. So the name Ruby is derived from the four main characters' four names, Ruby, Weiss, Blake, and Yang, and their associated theme colors, red, white, black, and yellow, which I never actually put into that, but makes fucking sense. Yeah. I know. And even their trailers were colored named before Ruby came out and it introduced the characters and it was like the yellow trailer for Yang and I think the Weisses was, I mean I think Blake's was black and white but like yeah, so Well I'm upset about Dumb, dumb I hate when things are like, hey, you're stupid. You're fucking stupid Yeah. Can you read? (laughs) You know, a little I guess Following several promotional trailers, the first episode was screened at the Rooster Teeth Convention RTX is in Texas and was released on their website in July of 2013. Then the subsequent episodes were released approximately weekly, which is essentially what it still comes out as now. It was first to Rooster Teeth subscribers and then it was to YouTube a week later. The series became a viral hit and the second season was released on July 14th. Unfortunately, in 2050, Monty Ohm passed away during production of the third series. This resulted in a delay of the production and an overall shift in the series production and release schedule. And I think a little confusion of the storyline. Like where at things that point. are going. Yeah. Yeah. From what I know, Monty Ohm literally had it all written out. And they have even said that they know where Ruby's going to end. And what the and mostly what the ending's gonna be, or God at least bless yes. the person with the show Bible. But it is all in like just like whatever yeah. draw a little it's draw, notes. yeah. So they still have to be able to build an actual story around mm-hmm. it. And Montiel was, I think, only in his later twenties. Yeah, was really young. he was really young, and it was very shocking, and no one was expecting it. But despite his death, the remaining crew members confirmed their intentions to continue the series, and Volume 3 was released in 2015 as planned. Uh, Meanwhile, the first two seasons were released on home media and made available on streaming services such as Netflix and Crunchyroll. It's not on Netflix anymore, but it is all on Crunchyroll, and a chunk of it is on YouTube. And you can watch it on on Rooster Teeth as well. There's just a, a whole bunch of ads. 
if you don't pay for it. In October 2016, the fourth season was released. The series was also then dubbed in Japanese and broadcasted to Tokyo MX in partnership with Warner Brothers Japan. Rooster Teeth also released a video game called Ruby Grim Escape, as well as a spinoff series called Ruby Chibi in 2016, which is super cute. Mm. And the whole reason I got the new game that I bought, the fighting game, is because it also has Ruby characters in mm-hmm. it, which is super fun. They definitely lend themselves really well to fighting yes. games because their designs are so fucking sick. They're so cute. Despite how the story plot can go up and down, there's two things that Ruby always does well. It is character design and music. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> Hard agree. So, as of March 21st, the website aired eight volumes. Rooster Teeth announced volume eight and nine on October 3rd, 2019. The eighth volume premiered on November 7th, 2020, and normally that's when, so they, how they split it up is Ruby Chibi normally comes out at the beginning of the year, and then Ru- regular Ruby comes out at the end of the year, so I'm assuming mm-hmm. uh, the next volume will come out around that same time this year. The ninth volume is currently in production. As of right now, Rooster Teeth gives us the number of 12 seasons or volumes is what they call them for how many it could be but they have stories and arcs drawn up that could extend past 12 that's exciting yeah so we'll see where it goes planning yeah mm. i think monty literally thing. planned like 30 something volumes good goddamn lord yeah some people's brains do that yeah. like weird galaxy mm-hmm. brain thing so it's like, here's this, the first 12 is probably like where we're at now, the main starting, mm-hmm. but they have enough to go further yeah. than that. And, you know, sometimes people's brains have to see the whole picture in order to create the little things. I like and that's that. apparently how Montiel worked. That's one of my favorite when you meet somebody like that and they're like, here, let me tell you the backstory of this weird thing. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right. So the story takes place in the world of Remnant, composed of four kingdoms that are plagued by malevolent creatures known as the Creatures of Grimm. The series focuses on four girls that enrolled into Beacon Academy in the Kingdom of Vale. Ruby Rose, White Snee, Schnee, Blake Belladonna, and then Ruby's half-sister, Yang Xiaolong. Together, they, te- they form Team Ruby. And at the time of their formation, numerous dust thefts, dust is how they use their life. What they believe when they first start is there is no, like, magic. They all have these things called sembiences, which is just an extra ability. And then dust lets them do these magical type things, but it's almost like their form of science, sort of. Interesting. Later, they realize magic does exist, but... The, what yeah. they know at this point is with well, you can't do a lot of these things without dust. So at the time of their formation, which is when they start this school, it's almost like a, a college, but specifically for hunters and and uh, right. hun, uh, huntsmen and um, huntresses. Ecology? So Ruby's fifteen, but she got okay. let in early. Okay, she's yeah, so she got she was special. special. She got let in early by Ozpin. Weiss is sixteen, which I assume is like the young age for the first year. We think their first years and second years. And then uh Blake and Yang are seventeen, which are the the normal age. Mm-hmm. And then we 
we're not 100% sure how it works because their schooling got cut off, but we think there's first years and then there's second years and the, but the, that's it. Like at that point after that, they become, so, and it's like, like it's, into the so world. yeah, so it's like the, instead of going to like college or like it's a little bit younger for college, it's a two year program that is like, it's like going for like a certification as yeah. opposed to going for like a actual call. Co- I don't, we don't know their actual it's a school. Two-year program. Yeah, exactly. And they become these huntsmen and huntresses. Mm-hmm. At the time of their formation, numerous death thefts are carried out in bail by the local crime lord, Roman Torchwick, with the aid of the White Fang, a profanist terrorist group. And then, um, as I was sort of saying before, faunists mm-hmm. are Mostly humans, but they all have one animal trait. So Blake is a fauna. She has cat ears. Sun is another big character. He is a monkey tail. They are the race that everybody's racist against. Mm -hmm. So that's how they bring that into Ruby. So Roman Tortric is behind all of these with the help of the White Fang, which is a pro-faunist terrorist group. And then Team Ruby keeps sort of getting involved in it and end up investigating and then they find out about Salem who's uh, well they find out about Cinder and then they find out about Salem and her they don't really know what she wants but she ends up destroying Beacon and then essentially just plunges Remnant into total chaos with the destruction of Beacon. Let's talk about the ladies we're talking about. We're going to start with my first love of Ruby, which was Yang. Mm-hmm. So Yang is the daughter of Raven Brawin and Taiyang Xiaowang and was born approximately two years before her half-sister Ruby Rose. Ruby mentions that Yang used to read her bedtime stories Aww. when she was younger and that Yang just was a good older sister that took care of her. Yang was raised alongside Ruby on the island of Patch off the west coast of Bale. Their father, Tai Yang Xiaolong, was a huntsman who taught at Signal Academy and a former member of a team consisting of Summer Rose, Crow, and Raven Brawin, who are twins. Oh. Yeah. Um, are they creepy? No. Raven's a bitch and Crow is like, you're a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> So, though, Raven's symbionts, which I didn't realize until I rewatched it, is she can make these portals to specific people. So she can actually make one to Yang, which is how she shows up and saves her in that, in season two. And then she can make one to Crow and she can make one to the dad. Okay. Yeah. But. That's an interesting power. Raven's a fucking bitch and Crow is like, you're a fucking bitch. Hey. You're really bad at this family thing. And Raven, who I had mentioned is the mother of Yang, left sh- very shortly after her birth. We don't really know how she- how it happened. They haven't gotten into those details. But she was not around. Hmm. She's a bitch. How did you how did you the Yeah, we don't really know what happened. I think Raven was a little bit different to Ty than what we know Raven as. Raven Left her after her birth because she's a fucking bitch. She was like, oh, baby, I'm going to go elsewhere. Baby (laughs) cried and she was like, oh, no. 
Are you gonna do that a lot? Ooh. Are you gonna are you gonna keep Ooh, doing that? I don't like I, this. I, I, oh, I you just this. threw up. I think I'm done. Oh my god, gross. Okay, <laughs> I'm so out of here. Ooh. All right. So actually fa- either of us has mothers. <laughs> Ew. Gross. Ew. Alright, so following this, Yang's father became romantically involved with Summer, Summer Rose. How he knocked up both, or how he got with both of his teammates other than Crow. Who knows? He probably got with Crow too. I wouldn't put it past yet, a tie, or, or Crow. I mean, seems fair. She ended up taking on Yang's, uh, the role of Yang's surrogate mother and gave her a sister two years later, who was Ruby. And, uh, Yang does refer to Summer as her mom. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Summer, however, would frequently embark on different huntress missions over the kingdom, and early in Yang's childhood, she was killed during one of them. Yang's father, distraught at losing yet another love, uh, suffered an emotional breakdown, and it was Yang, it was then that Yang actually found out that Summer wasn't her biological mother, and that Raven was her mom that abandoned her very shortly after she was born. Yep. So this motivated her to find why her mother left, and Yang- Cause she's a bitch. Cause (laughs) she's- Raven sucks. So bad. Like, it, it's not your fault that your mom's <laughs> fucking dumb. But she was young. And, like, she, bad this is like mom. little baby, baby Yang, like, like, oh, yeah. 10 years old, the Aww. most. Yeah. And so oh, no. she l- tries, she finds a clue on where her whereabouts of her mom, of where Raven is. And so one day when her dad was out of the house, she went to try to find her. And since she was supposed to watch Ruby, she took Ruby with her and it almost got them killed. Yeah, uh, they were almost killed by Beowulf, but Crow, their uncle, rescued them. And after that, Yang realized that even though she doesn't want to give up trying to find her mom and why she left, that she can't let it consume her and put her and definitely her baby sister Ruby in danger. Uh, so at that, she really stepped up and basically, I mean, she's not like a mom to Ruby, but she's definitely Mentor. an older sister yeah. to Ruby, which Aww. is super cute. It always worries me when they do things in shows where like, cause Ruby is obviously special. The show is essentially named after her. I mean, it's named after the team, yeah. but she is the leader. And where she's younger and coming in, it always makes me worried where they could, like, make the other person a bitch about it. Or they could, like, Yang is totally embraces it and is like, yay! (laughs) Look at my baby sister! Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) it's always good. All right, so Yang is tall, uh, fair skin, young woman with lilac eyes. Like I said, I think she's supposed to be 17 in the first season, in the fir- like the first one, two, three. And uh, bright golden hair that fades to a pale gold at the tips with the cowlick sticking up at the top. It very much resembles her mother's hair. It's just gold. Mm. Uh, and then, which is, it's in between... Her dad has a very pale blonde, and then Raven has black, so it's like a weird golden mix of it. And then when her semblance is activated, her eyes become red, and her hair almost gains a fiery glow. 
Yang is described as being cheerful, energetic, and a bright young lady. She is arguably the most flippant, carefree, and adventurous member of the team, frequently making sarcastic comments and dad jokes all over the place, even if they are not in the appropriate situation to be making dad jokes. And Yang is sociable and extroverted, even in unfamiliar situations. She has a love of adventure, and it's the main reason that she decides to become a huntress. And uh, Blake considers Yang the personification of the word strength. And according oh. to Ruby, she snores really loudly. That's probably fair. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> not calling anyone out or anything. <laughs> so Yang's brawler style of fighting Sick. definitely is a part of her personality. Mm. Uh, her anger is one of her main assets in battle and can lead to her predictably putting herself in danger. That is actually her semblance. The more she gets like hit, she essentially goes into her dad likes to call a temper tantrum, but she like, gets she's super- clearly the barbarian of the, the yeah. group. Yes. Yes. She is. She's the brawler. Yeah. She uses yeah. her fish. She uses the brawler. So Yang's I horse. I wonder if there's a Ruby tabletop, RPG, I bet there is. Yeah, I bet there is. So, Yang's voice actress, Barbara Dunkelman, and who also I, I love believe the goes, name Barbara. Yeah, I think she also goes by Babs. She no describes what. Yang as the kind of person who teaches someone how to swim by pushing them into water. Oh, well, you know. Which is exactly who it Yang is. Not work. <laughs> she is very straightforward and she is very confident. But despite all this, Yang is quite mature. She's extremely nurturing and motherly, particularly towards her younger sister, Ruby. Yang pushes her to be, become more outgoing and also worries that a great deal about her sister over all the battles they have. I thought you were going to say she pushes her in the pool. Oh, no. I'm sure she did. I'm yep. sure when she was younger, she pushed her in the pool. And after she starts to really get close with their teammates, this protective and encouraging nature extends to Blake and Weiss as well. Mm. Though Yang does not reveal that she does suffer from pretty extreme abandonment issues, blaming herself for her mother not sticking around. You talked briefly about all these, like, other issues, and Ruby takes in a lot of these other issues as well, Mm -hmm. starting with this one issue with Yang. All right, next up... Her bae Blake, Blake Belladonna, is the daughter of Gihara, I believe is how they say his name, mm. Belladonna, uh, who is the current chieftain of the Mangeria, and his wife, Kali Belladonna. As mentioned before, she and her parents are both Faunus, and the Mangeria is where the faun- most of the Faunus live. From early in her life, she was involved in the organization's protests against the unfair and discriminatory uh, treatment of the Faunus. It is clear that she continued to be a supporter even after her parents were like, her dad led it, it, and then they stepped down and she stayed in it because she grew up in it. It's a cult. It's essentially a cult. Uh... Yeah. Also, how shitty for it to be a cult where it actually... You know, it's a lot of cults where you're like, oh, you started somewhere good yeah. and then you made it really everything yep. terrible. Uh, yep. It's a, yes. Fucking cults. So when our We parent, should do a cult episode. Yes, we definitely should. We can definitely do that. Yeah. All right. So, um, like I said, it's clear that even though her parents stepped down, she remained an active supporter of the organization, despite it turned more military 
then eventually she was like, I'm going to enroll in Beacon a couple years later. So despite her later expressed misgivings of the organization as it was trying to gain respect through fear, she did fight along other members of the organization and was clearly trained to become a proficient guerrilla fighter. But it did get to a point where Blake was like, I can't follow what you're doing anymore. And she left. And that's when she joined, uh, when she ended up enrolling in Beacon. So Blake is a fair-skinned young woman, also 17, with wavy black hair and amber eyes. Her faunus trait is a pair of black cat ears on the top of her head. During the first few seasons, she'll always be seen with a big bow on her head to hide the cat ears since she would get bullied and treated unfairly and poorly for being a faunus. Blake can be described as mellow. She displays a cool, reserved, and serious personality most of the time, but does not lack a humorous side, which is usually in the form of a dry wit and sarcasm. Blake is a righteous person, respecting other people's lives, regardless of whether they are faunus or not. She strongly despises those who judge and discriminate based on racial prejudice. Blake is outspoken, going so far as indirectly insulting the Schnee Dust Company in front of Weiss, the heiress, and her teammate, and uh, will defend Faunus of any kind. (laughs) She is pretty demure, but she can be surprisingly charismatic, and she uh, rallied uh, the Faunus to defeat Mistral against the White Fang after the attack on her home. Nice. Good job. All right, so Blake is shown as an introvert, although she reads books to distance herself from discussion at hand. As the series continues, she is shown to be more outgoing and more friendly. Blake appears most talkative when discussing the history and the plight of her people. Blake's past negativity influences her personality, leading to moodiness, stubbornness, sleep deprivation, and trust issues at times. She also has self-loathing issues, viewing herself as a criminal hiding in plain sight because of her past with the White Fang, until her teammates convince her that they still trust her and care for her despite her being a faunus or a former member of the White Fang. Because once upon a time, the White Fang stood for something and then they just turned I mean, it back. sounds like a good start. It then... started as a good cause. Yeah. Uh, People with charisma and yeah. nothing else. And then uh, she ends up just viewing herself as a coward who runs away from her problems. Mm-hmm. Her semblance... So her semblance, she can leave, like, little astral projections of herself. So it's almost like she's running away. So that doesn't help her confidence in it. Yeah. It doesn't. Ooh. How many? Can she make a lot? Yeah, she can make a bunch of them. And they just, it's like a photocopy. Yeah. And as soon as, like, someone, like, hits it, it will just puff into nothingness because Mm. it's fake. Yeah. I wish it could puff into making somebody, like, making a face. (laughs) <laughs> she, I think she, it just takes whatever pose she makes so yeah. she can pick, pick exactly when she wants to make one. Mm. Yeah. That was me there was a funny chibi, Ruby chibi episode where there was one that like just kept, there was a couple of characters that kept talking to her and like getting super good advice, but just from themselves, fa- like faking a conversation. Mm-hmm. And then she was like, it's always weird. And she could walks out at the very end. It's like, Oh, it's always weird when these things don't disappear. And she just makes it disappear. And she gave, like, uh, Ruby and Jean and someone else, like, they're like, you're right. <laughs> and it was just one of her fucking fake oh, things. 
I love that. That's so cute. I love Ruby Chibi. It's so cute, yeah. and it just makes fun of everything in the well, show. It's nice to be like, let's look at the like dumb, cute parts yes. of this when everything is being, being is not serious. Yeah. <laughs> um, because of her semblance, it makes her even feel kind of worse about herself mm-hmm. and her tendency to avoid conflict and feeling unworthy of almost anyone's love. This is why she leaves her parents and why she ends up feeling like she runs away from a lot of things. However, she does have a strong sense of righteousness as she strongly disagrees with what the White Fang has become with its uh, increasing level of violence and hatred towards humans, especially Adam. Adam is her narcissistic, psychopathic, gaslighting, abusive ex-boyfriend. And she leaves uh, Adam and the organization. I assume organization. he's involved in the cult. Yes, he is. He's wanted, He wants to overtake the cult. Oh, cool. Yeah. And she ends up leaving Adam and the organization after realizing how spiteful and uncaring for human, human lives he, be, he was and finally decided to fight back against him after discovering that he was planning to overthrow Siana Khan, uh, who is the leader of the White Fang at the time, uh. and to gain total control. Hmm. And yeah, he murdered her. So her fondest traits also sometimes give her other aspects of a cat, even though I think most of the time they're just trying to be playful and funny with them. I don't think it's supposed to be anything serious, such as climbing onto Ruby's bed to stay away from Ruby and Yang's pet dogs uh, as why. Another time, she's distracted by and instinctively decides to follow a laser pointer light, and it ends up that uh, Yang is on the other side waiting for her and teasing her. (laughs) And then she also has a love for tuna, and she drools over a bowl of noodles with tuna in it in one episode. (laughs) It's cute. (laughs) All right, so let's talk about them and why Rooster Teeth just needs to fucking man up and make it official instead of being fucking jerks Admit and dragging it. it the fuck out. Oh, um, God. I hate a dragged out Yeah, thing. and everything I'm talking about is legit scenes from Ruby. So their relationship, it starts up slow as a friendship turning into a best friend relationship. And then the uh, even has... Characters essentially calling them out for being more than friends. So we're seeing it into it. Like I said, it might not even have something they meant to have started in the beginning. And then it's they were like, oh, this happened. So let's go with it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the first interaction was in volume one, chapter three. So volumes are technically seasons and episodes are chapters. I got you. All right. So volume one, chapter three was when Yang wanted to help Ruby make new friends. So Blake at first seems to have no patience with the two only wanting to get back to the, her book and being alone. And then after stating so, Yang proclaims that Blake seems like Blake. Blake seems like a lost cause to her sister. Sorry. I like almost <laughs> choked on my drink. Though in like the next couple episodes is when they end up pairing up and becoming a team. Her and Blake end up pair, it ended up being paired up and Blake seems to be pretty happy that Yang is her partner. Partner. <laughs> so even though Blake is known to be cold and mysterious, Yang makes her smile on several occasions after they become partners. 
Nothing crazy happens in volume one. All the girls just become friends and Team Ruby starts to really figure each other out and become a team. In volume two, chapter two, Blake is adamant about finding out what Roman Torchwick is plotting. After Ruby proposes, they start planning a day to do so. Yang gets excited and turns to Blake saying, I love it when you're feisty to Blake. Because Blake's all like, we got to do this. Yeah. Let's do the thing. Like, oh no. (laughs) Oh no, I wasn't expecting you to be cute. (laughs) Then you turned out to be a cat also. (laughs) No. I don't know if she's a cat yet. I don't think. Yeah, but like that will be the like nail in the coffin. Yeah. That would be the nail in the coffin for me. Like, what? So then later in chapter six, after losing Torchwick a second time, Blake dedicates all of her arrows trying to investigate him in the White Fang. Because of this, she doesn't sleep and acts cold towards her friends. Yang decides to try and get Blake to take a break and attend the upcoming school dance. After leading uh, Blake to an empty classroom, she ends up opening up to her about her own childhood struggles, explaining that her mother abandoned her, essentially, when she was born. And then this is where we learn about her search for her mom years later. Yang then explains to Blake that she won't let the search control her, like how Blake is currently letting the search control her. And Blake argues with her at first until Yang hugs her uh, and tells her that she doesn't need to stop, but she just has to get some rest. And she says, quote, not just for herself, but for the people she cares about. Hmm. As showing that she cares about Blake's health and well-being. And then as Yang is about to leave, she turns around and winks as she says to Blake. And if you feel like coming out tomorrow, I'll save you a dance. In the end, Blake does go to the dance with Sun, but she shares her first dance with Yang. She even, like, sounds like you want to dance, and she's like, Obviously, yes. Yes, but I have something else to do first. Mm-hmm. And she dances with Yang. Nice. And with that scene, too, is it's, like, specific that, like, this is the first time we're ever hearing about Yang's past, and she doesn't just open up about it with anyone because abandonment issues. Alright, so in chapter 10, we're still in volume 2, Yang can't sleep and asks Blake if she's awake, which she is. This leads to a discussion uh, that Weiss apparently eventually joins into about why they want to become huntresses. Blake goes on to open up a bit more about her past, revealing that she had an old partner named Adam who became a monster, and she becomes wary of what her future will be once that she leaves Beacon. And Yang reassures her by saying, I'm sure you'll figure it out. You're not one to back down from a challenge. This shows that she genuinely believes in Blake, and even if she doesn't believe in herself. Mm-hmm. As volume two closes, you can see the two are starting to bond with one another more than they were just teammates. Though, that is a more complicated statement, because Yang and Ruby are sisters, so they're obviously already bonded. But <laughs> that bond is different. <laughs> It's a different Obviously, bond. that's different. <laughs> but, like, the bond between Blake and Yang is more it's than, like, close. than more than with any of them with Weiss or more with for Blake than with Ruby or Weiss. Mm-hmm. So now we're on volume three where everything seems to be going great and then it's very not going great and everything is awful. Whoop. Real quick. Yep. In chapter 11, during the Battle of Beacon, both Ruby and Blake are missing. 
Weiss tells Yang this, and Yang chooses to go find Blake rather than Ruby. Wow. Meanwhile, Blake is fighting her old partner and abusive ex-boyfriend, mm-hmm. Adam Torres. And after uh, he is overpowering her, Adam says that he'll destroy everything that she loves. At this point, Yang arrives sort of in the distance and she's calling out for Blake because she's unaware that they're there. Adam points to Yang saying, starting with her. And Blake is horrified and it's all over her facial expression, confirming that Adam knows that she's important. Adam then stabs Blake in the stomach with a sword. Jesus. And she cries out in pain. This Mm -hmm. causes Yang to uh, know that she's there and uh, runs towards Adam yelling to get away from her. He doesn't, so she charges at him in blind rage because it's Yang. Mm -hmm. And uh, tears are rolling down her eyes at this point. But ultimately, she ends up getting her arm cut off and she loses consciousness. Adam goes to finish her, but Blake sends forward one of her shadow clones, which we were talking about earlier, to cover Yang's body. And this distracts him enough that she can grab Yang and escape. Later, they're seen laying on the ground. Yang is still unconscious. Blake is holding her hand, weeping and uh, saying over and over again that she's sorry. She blames herself for what happened to Yang and feels immense guilt for it. And because of this, Blake leaves Team Ruby and runs away to her family. This ends up greatly upsetting Yang because after all they'd gone through, she just felt like Blake left her without saying goodbye. And she has abandonment issues. Yeah. So it doesn't help. No. Yeah. So, end of volume three, because it was super heavy. It's super heavy. If you haven't watched Ruby and you're like, I'm going to go watch Ruby, just so you know, it's super fucking heavy. Everything's great, and then everything's not great. Real fucking quick. All right, so volume four and volume five is mostly, there's no really any physical interaction between the two, but there are a lot of moments where they talk and mention each other to other people and and end up meaning basically just as much. So in volume four, Sun is wounded at one point by Blake's former friend, Ilya, who definitely was in love with Blake. (laughs) At one point, she's like... Because there's, like, her, Ilya, Blake, and they were supposed to be best friends, and then Adam, who Blake was dating. Uh, and she was like, I just wanted to you to look at me like you looked at him. And I was like... <laughs> We've all been there. Uh, oh, no. Sexuality awakening. Oh, no. <laughs> Alright, so he's, uh, Son is wounded. When he wakes up, Blake explains that the reason she ran away was because she blames herself for the, hurting the people around her, especially Yang. She says they shouldn't have to fight her battles and that she will, alone will deal with her consequences and they shouldn't be hurt because of what she fucking did in her past. Sounds like you're stupid and let people help you. <laughs> and she's like, you're right. I'm dumb. I should let people help me. Yep. Sort of. In a slower way. It takes time. <laughs> but like, you know, that's the first step. Mm-hmm. Having somebody be like, wow, that's very dumb. That's the dumbest <laughs> thing I've ever fucking heard somebody say. <laughs> Excuse me, what? That's incredibly um, stupid. What? <laughs> yep. Essentially, that's what happened. Son is literally like, you're an idiot. 
Yeah, sometimes you have to say that. I'm not mad at you, and Yang's not mad at you yeah. for the injuries that we... She, she's mad at you, but she's not mad at you because her arm's cut off. <laughs> so for Yang, she starts season four in essentially a state of depression. She literally lost some of her friends, died, and she lost her arm. She does get a really badass robot arm. And Blake just left her, going back to those abandonment issues because of Raven, who's the worst. Yang does mention on several occasions that she doesn't understand why Blake left, and at one point is doubtful that she'll ever come back. And then when she's talking about this with Weiss at one point, she states, quote, uh, what if I needed her, meaning Blake, here, uh, what if I needed her here for me? And she begins to cry. And then Weiss reassures her that Blake will come back and it just needs some time to heal. So in volume five, chapter 13, during the battle for Haven, Blake walks into the school. So Blake has been gone for however much time this is. So she walks into the school to see all her old friends and her old classmates and her old partners because Weiss and Yang and Ruby are all there. Despite this, the only thing Blake says is Yang. She turns her straight attention to Yang. Yang looks at her in awe because... She is one of the first people that has ever left her and actually has come back. And then in chapter, I know, (laughs) fucking depressing. And secondly, the fact that we're having the same issues and we both decided to talk about a Mm -hmm. blonde with a cat girl. You kept fucking talking about things. I'm like, motherfucker. Yep. God damn it. How does this keep happening? How do we... Sometimes we have exactly the same character in completely different universes. Yep. And it's like, what? What is happening? Why are we like this? What? What? <laughs> so despite both Blake and Yang's hesitation, the two are reunited, reunited and the entire team of Ruby shares a meaningful group hug. If I can recall the episode correctly, both Ruby and Weiss sort of just stay back and watch the moment and then as soon as Yang and Blake embrace they all go in for a giant group hug because they're like oh what's gonna happen Uh, is Yang just gonna punch her or can we be happy we're all together is everything okay (laughs) so volume six is where you really start to see their relationship grow and I think this is where Rooster Teeth was like oh this is like a really legit legit (laughs) thing and we're feeding into it. So let's go with yeah. it. <laughs> you can only queer bait so much until somebody burns your house down. Yes. So, and honestly, it was good that it didn't happen until volume six because they, volume four and volume five of Ruby is a little bit slow, but each character goes through so much personal development that it's really important to the, the storyline or it wouldn't get to where they were. They're less insecure and now they can start to grow together because they understand themselves as people. And that's for all of the characters, essentially. So in the beginning of Volume 6, Blake tries to make things up to Yang by insisting that she helps her with her bag. It's one of those anxiety things that you do when you're like, please don't be mad at me, I'll help you. (laughs) Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. You're not mad at me, right? I'm going to put myself right here to see if you're mad at me. I just think that you're probably mad at me, so what if I do a bunch of good things to make sure that you're less... (laughs) 
mad at me. Uh, yep. I promise I won't cry. <laughs> so Yang tells her that she doesn't need to do that or to really even say anything and that we're going to be fine. I quotation marked for those of you quote, who quote, can't quote, see quote, it. Quote. And that is a quote, uh, meaning that her and Blake will be okay and that the whole team is back together. So it's all good and she's happy. In chapter five, Blake suggests that her and Yang search for other buildings in the town. They're looking for vehicles, whatever. So Yang gives her the cold shoulder. So she tries to like joke around and she's just, Blake is trying to joke around and Yang's just sort of like, I'm still mad at you a little bit. I said everything's going to be fine, but I'm still a little mad at you. So yeah. So, but they do go together to look through the shed and. When they find something, Yang looks through the window and she panics because she sees Adam for a split second because she is experiencing some really bad PTSD at this moment. She starts to shake and she then explains to Blake that she still gets flashbacks from the night. Blake takes her hand and basically promises her that she is not going to leave that she'll be there if Adam ever comes back. Blake then goes on to say that no matter what, she'll protect Yang, which Yang doesn't really take very well. It made her believe that Blake thinks that she's not strong enough to go against Adam. And so she ends up pulling away from Blake's hand and then being like, look, you don't need to protect me. We're equal in this partnership and I care deeply for you and I don't want you to die. So whatever we face with him or in general, we'll face together. (laughs) So chapter 10, Blake is tasked with shutting down um, a communications tower to help everyone to get on an Atlas airship. Yang takes her there on Bumblebee, which is her motorcycle, which is her cute little, like, pride and joy motorcycle. Yep. (laughs) It's called Bumblebee. That's the actual name of her motorcycle. And just as she's about to leave, Yang asks if she wants her to come with her, but Blake just tells her no, because Yang isn't the most quiet, stealthy person. (laughs) And is like, hey, no. It's all good. Don't worry about it. I'll be back. Blake goes off and Yang's waiting wherever she's waiting. So then it's chapter 11. And so before Blake is able to actually disable the tower, Adam fucking shows up and ambushes her. So there are multiple times that Blake thought she saw Adam and thought it was some PTSD. And she realizes that it wasn't. Most of the time, it wasn't her PTSD, and it was actually Adam stalking her because he is a... Creep. Psychopath. Also that. So, Blake and Adam are fighting, and he ends up disarming her. Yes. And just as he's about to kill her, he asks, how does he? How does it feel to be alone? But at this point, Blake hears the sound of Yang's motorcycle approaching in the distance Bro. and replies... That's I'm, my motorcycle sound. Essentially, replies, I'm not alone... Yang then drives off the cliff above them, launches herself off of Bumblebee, completely throwing the motorcycle at Adam, landing next to Blake, and Bumblebee basically just runs Adam over. (laughs) 
And then her her motorcycle, like, falls off the cliff. So, like I said, Yang loves her motorcycle, so she just fucking threw her (laughs) baby off of a cliff to save fucking... And it's, I'm like, people doing things with motorcycles, why is this a (laughs) turn-on? One-armed people with motorcycles. God fucking damn it! (laughs) I'm calling you out. (laughs) It's so specific. so weird! So specific. It's so weird. So, now that I keep coming back to that, and it keeps getting more specific somehow, (laughs) Yang and Adam begin fighting. Uh, He taunts her to the point where PTSD starts to act up. He asked her, asked Yang if she's uh, just trying to scare him away so she won't have to die trying to protect Blake. Blake takes Yang's hand and says, she's not protecting me, Adam, and I'm not protecting her. Uh, We're protecting each other. Mm. So then, since each episode is five minutes long. Right. Um. (laughs) Episode 12 happens, and Blake and Yang continue to fight Adam before uh, he's able to land a hit on Blake that sends her flying over the edge of the cliff. Blake is able to hold on uh, on the cliff, and Yang has to fight Adam until Blake can get herself back up. At some point, Adam yells, what does she even see in you? Meaning, what does Blake see in Yang to make her act like this and to not run away, to stay away, or but to stay and fight and protect in a kind of jealousy rage that Where? psychopaths have. Where? Yes. But also, obviously, seeing that yeah. Yang is something special to There's Blake. something important Yeah. There. Blake eventually finds her way back up. She and Yang use her broken sword to stab Adam. He falls over the edge and into the water below. And finally, the narcissistic psychopath bastard is actually dead. Oh, it couldn't happen to a nicer person. <sighs> Seriously. Yang then brings her hand to Blake's face and replies, I know you won't. About her, like, leaving. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they touch foreheads and continue to hold each other, uh, Blake putting her hand over Yang's in the process. Okay. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. Only gay people touch foreheads. No. <laughs> we were all thinking it. Or not all of us, but, like, those of us. <laughs> the queers of us were thinking no, it. No. <laughs> oh, man, I hate that you said the thing that was literally a beat. I was like, well. <laughs> you, you know what's up when they fucking touch forehead. <laughs> I hate every part of it. <laughs> okay. Later in, in chapter 13, they're able to leave Argus on the Atlas ship. Blake apologizes for not being able to disable the tower. Yang is sitting right next to her and reassures her that what happened isn't her fault. Before Blake could protest, Ruby ends up interjecting, being like, everyone's safe, that's all that matters, and we're here on the ship, so it's cool. And everyone has a big hug, and Blake looks at Yang and gives her a nice big smile, and Ruby seems to be like, (laughs) I know it. I know I'm the youngest here, but I know what's going on. (laughs) We know what's up. So later in that episode, or that chapter, Weiss says to Blake that she's sorry that she had to go through that nightmare, but is glad that Yang was there for her in time. Yang then places her hand over Blake's and says, we're there for each other. 
and the two share a meaningful look, and Blake's eyes seem to dilate a little bit. It's very much the same energy as, we don't need any boys, between Mars and Venus. Yes. (laughs) Um, We don't need any boys. (laughs) So, that's the end of Volume 6, and obviously all of us Bumblebee fans were screaming. But I could still (gasps) totally get that it's a ship at that point, Mm -hmm. and that they could just be super close BFFs. But... I mean, if you... If you know you forehead touched so <laughs> But I'm just saying Volume seven and eight happened and they're now they're just dragging it out to be assholes, I feel like at this I hate point. that. The worst. Uh, like somebody's gonna die or you're gonna finish things and then be like, Oh, Dumbledore was gay the whole time. <laughs> I mean, is that not the perfect example? <sighs> Alright, so, Volume 7. Here we are. I'm just going to start off by saying that throughout the entire Volume 7, Blake and Yang can be seen looking at each other at various points in time, gawking at each other in the background. It's fine. And then... Your forehead (laughs) touching in your mind, and I know. (laughs) God damn it. I hate forehead touching so much. Also, when they tend to do fights and break up into missions. They solely fight with each other. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's a lot of scenes, even though they that they may be small and standalone might not mean much. When you put them all together, it paints a pretty little queer picture. Mm-hmm. Chapter three, everyone receives a nice little outfit change, which is always exciting. <laughs> yep. And outfit. Blake ends up cutting her hair as well. So oh, it's cute. like Chinley. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And when they are receiving details for their new missions, Blake realizes Yang is essentially like drilling her, just staring. And okay. yep. And then when Blake catches Yang staring at her, <laughs> she fumbles, being caught off guard, saying, sorry, I just not used to your new hair yet. And Blake smiles, but is visibly blushing and asks her if she thinks it looks bad. And Yang is like, no, 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 it's gr- it's good. It's great even. So, you know, lesbians trying to flirt horribly. Oh, God, it's so hard. <laughs> You're like... Is this person just nice? Rude, no. <laughs> Fuck. You're so pretty. <laughs> Essentially. Oh, God. Um, and then... Like since- strong flashbacks to any time I've tried to flirt with a girl. And then since Blake's weapon was broken at the end of Volume 6, her weapons receive an upgrade as well. I can't remember her what her weapon is. So she has these, like, sword-type things that are also on, like, a string so she can, like... Okay. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like mm-hmm. rope dagger type, yes, really. yeah. So Blake's sword was mended together with gold, which is the method known as kintsugi. Oh, Yes. The gold can be perceived as a reference to Yang, as she's often associated with the color gold on multiple occasions. Her color is yellow, Mm -hmm. and yellow is often associated with gold. And it's also implied that Blake specifically requested that her weapon was repaired this way. Mm -hmm. And then in Chapter 4, 
during their little graduation party when they officially became hunters and huntresses. Yang ran up next to Blake and starts taking selfies with them together, but even though Blake is surprised at first, ends up smiling in most of them anyways. I'm not saying that's a gay action. (laughs) Or... But it might be a queer action. And I'm pretty sure Yang would be queen of finger guns. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> when you were talking about Yang's dad jokes, yep. I remember the first time I watched Ruby making at least two of Yang's jokes before she made them and being like, Why I love Yang so much, even though I hate dad jokes, is a mystery to me. <laughs> That's the thing. Dad jokes, aviators, punching people. <laughs> That's a good solid thing to be. <laughs> One arm, you know. Hey! <laughs> In chapter five, during the morning montage, there are flashes of Team Ruby progressively getting more and more tired to the point where Blake ends up falling asleep on Yang's lap and oh. Yang just sort of ends up resting her uh, her um, hand on her arm and her body. I'm petting her. And it's cute. I'm sure, I'm sure she does a little scratchy on her ears. How could you not? I bet they're really soft. I bet they are. Every archive of their own. <laughs> That's true. Oh my god. Okay, so. <laughs> uh, and then in chapter six, okay, this is a big one. So, after being told everyone has the night off for the election, Blake is seen putting on makeup while Yang is looking at her from her bed. When Ruby asks where they're going, Blake says that uh, that team Funky, they're the ones with the cool music instruments. Do you remember them? Right. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And the, like, the, the girl has the rollerblades on. The yes. Rollerblades no, I very on. much yeah. remember So, they're team girl. Funky. They invited her and Yang for dancing. Ruby brings up that Yang thought that Team Funky was annoying, and then Yang replies that the best part about dance clubs is that no one can hear each other. This causes Blake to laugh, and then a few moments later, Yang starts laughing at Blake's attempts to copy a dance move that Yang had showed her previously. Mm. Yang demonstrates it again, and Blake insists that she's doing it the same way, causing them both to laugh, because she's definitely not... Yep. I get it. <laughs> Later in that episode, Relatable. <laughs> at Robin Hill's political rally, Ren and Nora try to work out aspects of their relationship because they randomly were like, Ren and Nora are going to randomly have a bunch of fights that make no sense. And I'm like, can you please let someone be happy? <laughs> just let Ren and Nora, every single Ruby person is like, let Ren and Nora just be Ren and Nora. Please. <laughs> drama. Yes. But... In doing so, Nora compares their relationship to Blake and Yang's, clearly inserting herself with Ren into this, commenting, she says, friends, huh? Just friends? And then Ren replies, well, what else would they be? And Nora responds, two people that have gone through so much, I think there's more going on. So... God bless Nora. Yes. Fucking Nora, being my fucking queen... But not only is I'm like, is this scene great for them? Because they end up making out about five seconds later. But it's being like, Nora's like, there's clearly something happening between them. The subtext is text. But I'm putting it into our relationship because we're the same thing. Which means it's written in the actual plot. So come on, Rooster Teeth. And and going on to say, though, Ren and Nora... (laughs) 
uh, aren't officially a couple. They are canon, and they both have said I love you to each other, and they have kissed, and not just, like, a, a little peck. Yeah. Nora kisses Ren, and then Ren's like, okay, I'm into this. And then they're like, oh no, people are being murdered. We need to save people. I guess we can't be, <laughs> I guess we can't be out. <laughs> and I mean, I guess the scene could just be a tease, but that'd be real rude. Real fucking rude if Rooster Teeth did that. That would be intense queerbaiting and you would have to throw them down. Yeah. Like, rude. Yeah. Next in chapter 12, Blake and Yank use their tag team powers to defeat the experienced ace ops in combat after Ironwood starts to go crazy and turns on everyone due to his paranoia and Salem is known at this point, but Blake and Yang have these like special combo moves together to kick people's butts. Excuse me. Yep. Your romantic video game mechanic. <laughs> I know, right? It's great. They're I'm sure they're great in tag and I'm excited about it. So I hate you. Volume eight now. Probably almost pulled my hair out while watching some of this, but it's fine. Chapter one team ends up splitting up. Ruby thinks they should go to one, uh, should do one thing. Yang thinks they should do something else. So they end up splitting up. Blake, surprisingly, I thought she would go with Yang, but actually went with Ruby, probably mm. to cause some more drama. Mm. And But she's seen giving a very sad glance at Yang as she leaves to do what she thinks is right, as opposed to what Ruby thinks they need to do. In Chapter 3, Blake admits feeling worried, witnessing Ruby and Yang's fight, when Nora confesses how she's struggling to understand herself and her relationship with Ren. Blake claims that growing close to somebody, that they become a part of you, but remember that you should never forget the rest, clearly in reference to herself and to Yang. Mm. So, hey, what that means is be your own person, even in a relationship, people. Yes. <laughs> I also agree. <laughs> <laughs> so the next huge scene comes in chapter four of the most recent season eight. Yang asks John, because he's still a person. Oh, God. I know. He becomes a little less useless, but still just as annoying. Care. I know. I know. I don't care how I, useful you are. You no. still suck. You suck so bad. So Yang asks Sean, do you think she thinks less of me for not helping out with uh, Mitty? To which Jean replies that Ruby is her sister, and no matter the disagreement, she will always love her. Yang responds with a somewhat cryptid, yeah, Ruby, because that's clearly not who she was you referencing. You just said cryptid instead of cryptic. Yeah, I totally <laughs> It's still a cryptid. It's a croissant. Yeah. This is all about a croissant. It was very, very buttery and delicious. <laughs> so good. So Yang responds with a very cryptic, yeah, Ruby, but it was definitely clear that she didn't mean Ruby and that she 100% meant Blake. Shockingly, Jean didn't get it because, because he's, he's the worst fucking, fucking character. Awful. I watched three seasons, but I know. Yes. He doesn't get any better. Yeah, well, and also, he's... he's <laughs> Though like, his sister is a, a lesbian, and they're married, and they have a, they adopt a little baby. Okay, I'm here for that. They're, that's the, they're one of the official queer couples in Ruby. I'll pay attention to yeah. that part. Yes. Why I think this is so important, personally, I don't think 
true best friends ever worry about their friends thinking less of them unless it's over something legit horrible like like racism or uh, homophobia or anything awful like that and this is not the case exactly unjustified unjustified murder (laughs) yes Uh, um and this is just not the case here Uh, i like that you know that i would think less of you like more if you were like a racist shithead than if you killed someone who was a dickhead yes I'm like, well, <laughs> I mean, it sounds like they deserve it to me. <laughs> she isn't actually worried about Ruby thinking less of her because she obviously knows where she stands with Ruby being her sister. Also, um, Ruby's like a tiny yes, ball of bean. love. Yes. She's a, like, poof. Yep. But... <laughs> With her and Blake, there's something new happening. It isn't just a friendship. If I had a disagreement with you or were annoyed with each other, we would never be worried that we would be thinking less of each other. We would just be annoyed and we would get over it. Yeah. We've already talked about where I will think less of you and it's racism or killing somebody who was a good person. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Awful murder for no reason. And I have too much anxiety for that, so don't worry about it. I know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And then this is something that starts to happen when you hit a new potential relationship grounds. Mm. As someone who has definitely been in a very, really close friends with someone and then moving into that almost territory, this does start to become a worry where you start to think they're going to judge you more. So she obviously wasn't talking about Ruby. She knows her and Ruby are solid. Obviously, this hetero dum dum didn't <laughs> understand. <laughs> Obviously, Jean. Ugh. Uh, the worst. Seriously. All right. So in chapter ten, when Jean Yang, Emerald, Oscar, and Red. Oh yeah, I guess I should have mentioned this before. This just came out like a year ago. So super spoilers. Yeah, but it's fine. So when Jean Yang, Emerald, Oscar, and Ren blow up the whale, we're just going to leave it at blowing up a whale. (laughs) Everyone else in the other team is horrified and they're not sure that they made it out of the blowing up whale. So they're worried that no one lived and they're like, oh no, all of our friends except Emerald because they don't know she's turned at this point. And yeah, Emerald turns. Oh, good. Yeah. Blake does end up receiving a call from Yang, and as soon as it does, her face, you can just see, is just, like, relief that she and, I guess, the others were also safe. And Emerald was a good person. I guess everybody else, too. (laughs) And it's this little, like, FaceTime chat that they have that Yang realizes that Blake obviously didn't ever think any less of her for going off and doing what she thought was best. At the beginning of the season. They all make a plan to meet up at the Schnee Manor. And when, like, the door opens, everybody's there. But Blake is sort of just standing by herself in the back. Yang gives Ruby a very quick hug. But then, like, instantly goes to Blake. Puts her hand on her cheek. Blushes. And then... Forehead touches! Oh! Forehead touching. Oh, no. You know what that means. Blake smiles. Tell back. your kids about forehead touching. I know, but Blake smiles, puts her hand on Yang's waist. I thought you were they have a cute little butt. embrace, but 
I wanted to throw my controller at the TV when they only four had touched. I was like, are you... Commit to the... It was literally like... And I was like, "R." First of all, ouch. (laughs) Probably not as harsh, but I'm angry about it. No, I get it. I get it. But also... Like, and it was even like a... I'm going to blatantly ignore everyone. I gave my sister a two-second hug, but I'm going to be worried about I you. your feet. So I'm going to come this close, touch but your not face, kiss you. blush, and then touch your forehead. Yeah. Well, also, I feel like <laughs> Yang is the, like, first move maker. Yes, 100%. Blake won't do it unless Yang does it. Yeah. <sighs> Yang! But also, writers! <laughs> We know who to play. And literally every person I talk to about this, even people who aren't, like, super, like, everyone's queer like we are, is like, what the fuck? Just make it happen. Are you kidding me? This forehead touch shit again? <laughs> you can't do it twice. You have to escalate. So Brittany contained her anger and didn't <laughs> throw her PlayStation controller through her TV. <laughs> Nor did she fly to Texas and punch these fucking writers. Hey. But she's real mad about it. Thinking about it still. Chapter 11 and 12, Yang and Blake are seen to always basically be right by each other and sometimes even kind of laughing amongst themselves in some private joke that no one else knows in the background. (laughs) They're just saying gay about a lot of things. (laughs) And then in Chapter 13, Team Ruby was fighting Cinder to save a bunch of people. And then Neo was a super cute outfit now. Which it was cute before, but mm. Alpha 2 is cute as well. Yang is attacking Neo, and Neo sneaks an attack on Ruby, so Yang blocks it, but she ends up falling into this dark abyss that is going to lead to another dimension. We don't know where it leads. We don't even know if it leads to another dimension. All we know is they're not supposed to fall into it. Oh, no. The god told us specifically, don't fall into oh, it. No. And Yang is the first one to fall into it. So it's like, oh bad, no. bad Yeah. So yeah. So all of Team Ruby ends up falling into it. And so that's wherever they're going to start the next season. But mm-hmm. Yang is the first one to fall in. So you're like, oh Shit. no. Yeah. Exactly. And so when she's falling into it, they show Ruby and they show Weiss and they're just sort of like, Oh no. Yeah. And it's Blake who is the one to start running and she throws her, what is called her gamble shroud, which is her weapon to try to catch Yang, but it doesn't reach her. It's not long enough. And so Yang falls in and Blake freaks the fuck out. She starts screaming. She starts crying and she starts to just attack fucking Neo like crazy. More fight scenes happen. All four of them end up falling into this. But that's where Ruby ends for Volume 8, which just came out. So Volume 9 is probably going to come out in October, November. So we'll see what's coming for them then. Resolution! So I did see a few places that when they were talking to Rooster Teeth and the people who are currently writing and creating Ruby... It's been asked about Bumblebee. Of course. They said, wouldn't you rather see how it plays out on screen than us saying something? 
Yes. So. But also. But come on, a fucking forehead touch twice. Two forehead touches. Two forehead touches. You can only do one before you escalate. You could have done a forehead touch. And in Ruby Chibi, they actually mention it a lot. There is an episode where Yang is cut off from telling a joke and she just is so like interrupts her and she just said and I said Bumblebee it's more like and then it cuts off nice. um, there's another one where Team Ruby puts on a play with Blake as the big bad wolf and Yang as the grandmother did you from say Red that Red Bumblebee Red. is the ship name or yes. did we okay I can't yeah so Bumblebee is the ship name said that yeah and it's like they're like huge yeah. ship name like it's there's ship names but like the That's fucking the yes yes the Ruby ship names are like crazy like how intense they are like you won't ever refer to Blake and Yang as Blake Yang like it's always going to be like Bumblebee so in episode 12 of Ruby Chibi the team Ruby puts on a play that's sort of based on Little Red Riding Hood Blake's the big bad wolf and Yang is the grandmother and Yang insists on cracking jokes to make an impersonation for one of the scenes Blake comments, just get a bed, Grandma. And Yang responds, easy there, Wolfie. You haven't even bought me dinner yet. Another episode, Yang is facing off Blake in a pillow fight. And and it's like an intense pillow fight. All the boys are like imagining like a fluffy pillow fight. And they're like literally like weaponizing pillows, of course. And Yang is facing off Blake in a pillow fight. Blake teleports and dodges all the pillows and in one of the positions she teleports, she pats the bed, then winks at Yang. And one of the last last episodes where there's a little Sub-tank. Easter egg, Yang holds a sign that says, Save the Beast. Cute. <laughs> so, though it is not officially canon, it's pretty fucking canon, it's one of the most popular ships in Ruby. One of the other popular ships is White Rose, which is yeah. uh, Weiss and Ruby. But the amount of, like, stuff that you can ship for Weiss and the stuff in there. Ruby. Yeah. It's like, they're... Evidence. Prop more than, like, if they don't make uh, Bumblebee canon. canon, then I'm like, you're just fucking queer shaming all of yeah. us. Like, <laughs> queer banning and yes. bullshit. Yeah. So... Like, don't take my money if you're not going to actually yeah. commit to the shit. And I think they will. I think they're just trying to draw it out to make us all pull our hair out. Wah! And like I said, it's not like they're they're opposed to anything like that. They're, yeah. But like, yeah, just make it Still. official. But they Wah! wouldn't. They wouldn't be putting all those things in if no. I don't think There's they were going to of- be there. Yeah, they would. Especially the whole like Nora friend scene. Like you can't have your own characters commenting on yeah. it if you're not going to do anything. That's fucking rude. You can, but that's shitty. That's fucking rude. So that is Bumblebee, and how even though they're not officially canon, they're they're like everybody considers them like semi-canon. They're on the edge. They yeah. Just need to yeah. They over. just yeah. It just has to be like that official word, but it is. Just let them is, kiss, yeah. you motherfuckers! Fucking so many them. forehead touches. So many forehead touches. So yeah, for pride. Forehead, forehead touching is very queer. Yeah, forehead touch your crush. They'll probably get it if they're queer. And if as not, long as they're and if I they don't get it, then they're not for you. Headbutt them. You're already there. <laughs> <laughs> There's the solution. 
All right, everyone. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. Have a good one. Yeah, we hope you've had a really great Pride. And that you've, I don't know, been able to, like, enjoy time with your queer friends. And hopefully next year we'll be able to do, like, parades and shit. Yeah. And do the whole goddamn thing. All of it. But on that note, please, 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 for our queer asses, rate, review, and subscribe. <laughs> they would enjoy it for the yeah, month of Pride. It would be super great. It'd be great. That. It definitely helps out. We yeah. appreciate all of you. Yeah, so you can find us on Apple Podcasts, where you can rate, review, subscribe. You can also find us on Spotify. And we're on Podbean and the ESO Network. And uh, we will maybe see you next Tuesday. Who knows now? Because Brittany's very busy. We're keeping our fingers crossed. (laughs) But uh, we'll see you either next Tuesday or possibly the Tuesday after. Mm -hmm. See you one of the next Tuesdays. A next Tuesday. A next Tuesday. (laughs) Quant. So it received critical. (laughs) Oh no! I think you have to go. I think. I think you're done. (laughs) Clinical. (laughs) <laughs> My favorite. <laughs> I mean, it fits. Uh, it fits uh, our topic. Uh, it fits our theme. <laughs> Fucking shit. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public store, which can all be found at esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.